the path of the Buddhas invites us to look at a very fundamental question, which is this question of what brings contentment in life and what brings unhappiness in life, what brings discontent. The heart is very much conditioned to look for contentment, to look for happiness in things external, things outside of ourselves that really can't offer a lasting happiness as much as we may yearn for it. All of the different ways of talking about the practice, all of the different models within the practice, all of them point us inwardly. That's their whole function, is to point inwardly towards where contentment really truly can be found, really towards the satisfaction of yearning. So actually, in practice, we're reorienting ourselves because the conditioning really points externally. It really does take uh, reorientation to point ourselves inwardly. In every human life, there are the seeds of awakening available to be tapped into or not. And in practice, there actually is this deliberate attempt to tap into these seeds of awakening, to see beyond appearances, how things appear to be, to see beyond assumptions, how we assume things are, and to look more deeply for ourselves. So I'd like to take up a particular model of practice tonight, one known as the five powers of mind, to talk about each one of these inner powers, and as well to talk about how they balance each other, balance together, and how important it is for them to balance, and then as well how they work together. I find it one of those incredibly elegant systems or models or ways to look at the practice. What they include are faith or confidence, effort or energy, concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom. The first one being faith. Sometimes we are always talking about how no faith is required in practice, and then we all of a sudden use this word faith. It really comes from the Pali word sadha, and generally it's translated as faith, but other words that might be a lot better um, have to do with confidence and trust. Some sense of confidence and trust clearly is necessary for practice, otherwise How are we going to um, do it at all if there isn't some degree of confidence? You know, sometimes it feels like desperation, but that's okay. That's still, there's still confidence in that desperation because there's an awful lot of other things one could be doing other than sitting still, looking at oneself. People are not, you know, actually lining up, fighting with one another to be able to do this. The practice is very much an invitation 
Yeah? pasiko is what the Buddha said. pasiko, come and see. Come and see for yourself how things are. And so the faith that is required in practice is not a faith that's based on any kind of blind belief or somebody telling us something and having to adhere to a particular system. Now, it's really this kind of enlivening um, sense of faith. Is it possible to take a leap of confidence? Yeah. The leap getting us on the path, and then you know, leap after leap after leap, actually, as we continue to practice the path. There needs to be some degree of confidence that there actually is a path. And it certainly looks invisible in the beginning. But as we practice more and more, it really does become more and more visible. We see that it is a path and that it is actually possible, not just for people living 2,500 years ago to, to practice and to attain freedom, but for each one of us as well, yeah, to really know that within us as well are the seeds of awakening that we can tap into and allow to mature and grow. And also recognizing um, some degree of confidence in the fact that freedom exists, something beyond this material world exists, that there is something other than the relative, there is something other than the conditioned. And sometimes we don't know this at all within ourselves, and we do have to rely a little bit on others to hold it for us until we see for ourselves. And I think it's very appropriate to do that, to allow others to hold our faith for us until we can grow into it on our own. When I was um, really young, I had a family that um, we did a lot of different things together. We would go, my, my family would kind of put us all in the station wagon at once and say, you know, we're going here, we're going there. And I kind of had to have time to grab a tooth brush and off off we were. And it was quite interesting, you know, although it was really good to have those kinds of experiences and to have a family that did things together and traveled and, you know, was so spontaneous. On the other hand, I was always struck when I were was in these different environments, I was always kind of wondering, what is the meaning of life? You know? <laughs> what what why are people going hither and thither and doing this and doing that and occupying themselves? It seems so strenuously and with such difficulty. Um, yeah, I mean, even going to the zoo or something and you know, finding oneself tired or you know, cranky or um, people not cooperating or this or that, and it being such a lot of effort to get there. You know, it's such a lot of effort to do it. It's such a lot of effort to get ourselves home. And that, that question couldn't help arising in me, is there anything else? Yeah? <laughs> is there anything more? And this really, you know, in a way, is a question that has to reside in the unconditioned. Yeah? I mean, when we look at the relative world, when we look at the material world, it's limited, as wonderful as it gets at times, and it does. At the same time, it's limited. And so that, that leaping off into or that 
knowing somewhere within oneself that something else really truly is possible, even if we can't give it a name, and even if when one says freedom, we say what, and we don't connect with the word at all, or other words either, still something bringing us here, something that we know very deeply inside, allowing us to take at least an initial leap of faith with the understanding that when we do, experience will support us. And then out of our own experience, we'll be able to take another leap of faith as well. And then that's how the practice develops. Because always faith is required because we're always opening to the unknown. There's never a guarantee. We don't know what we're going to open to because we're always pressing against our delusion. So if we're deluded, how can we know what's on the other side? Yeah. So always opening to the unknown always does require some degree of trust, some degree of confidence. This confidence and trust is so important because it's what leads to the next power of mind, which is that of effort. It's not possible for there to be effort unless there is some degree of confidence, some degree of trust. The effort is the effort to turn towards the present. So you can see why there has to be some confidence or trust, because why turn towards the present? The breath is not all that pizzazzy an object when there are great fantasies occurring. or when there are wonderful plans to be made, or wonderful <laughs> memories to, to go over, over and over again. Yeah? The present moment, it sounds good. Yeah? And as the cliche, be in the present sounds really great. But to do it, to have the confidence to turn towards the present moment and away from our cherished friends, this really is where effort comes in. Because we have this instinct, our instinct is always to cling to pleasure, whether it's a pleasurable thought or a pleasurable um, thing or a pleasurable person or whatever it might be. It's to cling to pleasure and to try to push away or get rid of pain. Our instinct as well is to define ourselves through the variety of experiences that we have. And so to not do that, yeah, the, the effort to let go and to be in the present moment, to be with things as they are, there really is a letting go of, of instinct, a turning away from instinct. It's a turning away from habit, yeah. from our habits. And what is required is not so much, as I spoke about on maybe the first evening, not so much a willfulness or willpower, but more the willingness to be present. More and more the willingness to be here. We talk about method and technique, and when one reads books or does a lot of different retreats with a lot of different teachers, the methods can seemingly collide at times. And, you know, it's one of those very, very funny 
um, I find it funny anyway, thing that can happen with a sophisticated meditator is kind of a, a supermarket of, of ideas inside one's head, like instructions, you know, do this, but maybe do this, but let go, but hang on. But, you know, this technique is better. Oh, you should be with the nose. No, the stomach is really where it's at. Yeah. Kind of really fighting it out, colliding. The mind gets very crowded. And, of course, we know the practice is to, to you know, let go of the extra. Um, Dharma instructions can, can make it quite a crowd in there. What is important is really the earnestness with which we practice. And one does have to choose a method choose a technique, and stay with it through thick and thin. Certainly, this is really important to do. But what is more important than the technique or the method is the earnestness with, with which we practice. Now, this is really what propels our practice most, is earnestness. There's a, um, a, Chan, a Chinese master that teaches a number of different techniques. He's a lineage holder of uh, a number of different ways of practice. And the ways of practice are very different. One way is very, very gentle and soft and open up and relax and rest. And when he teaches like that, he's very relaxed and kind and soft and gentle. You know? And he says, this is the only way to practice. This is the best way to practice. This is how everyone should practice. And then he also has a, a, a technique, is a lineage holder of another style of practice, which is very, you know, breakthrough style, strong, um, you know, the cruel Zen master, um, you know, the bop on the head style. And when he teaches like that, he is more a bop on the head kind of guy, you know? He really is much more um, slashing and cutting and, you know, this is how you should do it and, Somebody who doesn't do it like this is really not practicing. And, you know, forget the kindness, forget the gentleness, you know. <laughs> Just break through right here and now. And with such, such enthusiasm, you know, if, if you didn't have perspective, you'd think that, you know, that's all he does. But then you go back, and then there's this gentleness, this kindness, and he's, he's very thorough with whatever way he's teaching. But what's so funny is that whichever style he's teaching, he says it's the best. And he says this to get everybody behind it so that you'll do your best, so that that earnestness will be cultivated because he knows that the earnestness is much more important than the method, than the technique. We can get a little bit um, fascinated or greedy sometimes actually about techniques, you know, one being better than another one and um, what's the best, what will get me there fastest. I've never, in my time, Maybe, maybe so, but I've never known of any, anything that's faster than anything else. Um, you know, because the work always has to be done, and it's slow and, um, and beautiful, and it just has to be done. You know, there's, no, there's no taking shortcuts. Sometimes you can kind of cut ahead and have some kind of a breakthrough, um, but you're going to crash you know, if the foundation hasn't hasn't been buttressed up, if you haven't really worked with really what's so important to hold ourselves up, to hold the practice up with. In working with effort, 
we can look to see whether we have some kind of model around conserving our effort being the best way to go. And to see this on a retreat is interesting. You know, very kind of like, I'll do this and I'll do that, and then I'll have enough energy to do this and do that. And it's all very planned and concocted. Another way of practice is if there's confidence, if there's trust, to plunge in, to not be so afraid. Because actually, in practice, when we do put out effort, we do receive energy. It's one of those um, odd, wonderful things that occurs, is that in the willingness to put out effort, we actually do tap into more energy being available to us. We lose touch with energy because we're so lost in our thoughts and we exhaust ourselves. On retreats, we find sometimes we do have a little bit more energy available to us. And it's not just because we're not doing anything, which is what we may think. Um, It's actually because we're not as much caught in our thoughts. We're more settled into the body. And so there's more energy actually available to us. We can be aware of our leanings, our conditioning. You know, do we do we kind of measure um, measure our efforts out, or is there a lot of tension because we're trying so hard, we're striving so hard? And if there's the measuring to plunge in, if there's the striving too hard to relax back, to be more gentle, and perhaps to get some guidance about this, because oftentimes we can think we're not striving when we are. And um, other times we're so afraid uh, to plunge in that we need a little bit of encouragement to do so. This effort follows onto the third power of mind, which is that of mindfulness. Mindfulness, of course, is a non-judgmental observation. There needs to be the effort to be mindful to notice what our experience actually is. Mindfulness, of course, is contact. It's connection. It's being in actual, direct, nonverbal contact with whatever it is that's happening in the present moment. With our life, but not our life in terms of describing my life. You know, not ourselves in terms of describing ourselves. But our life happening right here and now, in the present moment. Mindfulness is really an open-heartedness because it's being open-hearted to all experiences. It's not valuing one moment of life over another moment of life, which is what we're basically doing all the time, saying this is important and this is not important, so I'll pay attention now, but I don't need to now. There are all these really great stories in the Buddhist time of people waking up while, you know, lifting one foot up, you know, or, or while eating a pear, or, you know, the head, that famous story of the Buddha's attendant uh, waking up just as his head was not upright and not on the pillow, but mid-flight, <laughs> you know, right in between the two. So, obviously... The idea is to see if we can be open-hearted and aware of all experiences that are occurring, all moments that are happening. Not so much the focus on the experience, but the focus on the attentiveness in the present moment as being significant. 
Mindfulness is quite different than ordinary attention. Ordinary attention tends to pick and choose, tends to have preferences and to decide what it wants to be aware of, you know, something that's really good, and what it doesn't want to be aware of, something that we don't approve of or don't like that's happening. Whereas mindfulness really is a letting go of control, you know, it's really instead of trying to control our experiences with the motivation being to control our experiences so that we can have better ones, it's the motivation to understand It's the motivation to understand ourselves and one another and this world more deeply. It's very, very different. The intention, the motivation is very, very different. Instead of contraction and tension, there is a sense of expansion and spaciousness. Mindfulness really serves life. It's not deliberately a serving of one's personal desires, although one's personal desires, of course, if they're wholesome, may be fulfilled along the way. But the intention is really to serve all beings, to serve life itself, which really takes the burden off. It's so tiring to try to satisfy all our desires. I mean, it gets quite exhausting, but to think that Um, There's something more expansive that's possible for us, and that happiness is part of this really allows for a little bit of a lifting of a burden. Concentration is the fourth power of mind, and really this does have to do with power, power of mind and strength of heart. Concentration allows us to be able to bear with more of our experiences without flinching away from them. It really is a way to enlarge our capacity to be with all of our life and not just little bits and pieces and fragments of our life. In concentration, the more the mind is concentrated, the more fullness of heart actually appears. The heart feels quite um, complete and quite full. This is really essential because it really works against that conditioning of believing that happiness can only truly be found outside of ourselves, in something, in someone else, in some particular idealized situation. So when we have any experience of concentration, Any experience of the heart feeling full, the heart feeling content, even if it's for a moment or two, it's quite significant because it is a a signal to ourselves that more is possible. It's an independent source of joy, an independent source of contentment, and it really allows us to go much deeper when when we know this for ourselves. Concentration as well disentangles the mind from our addiction to thinking. Now, and it's, it's not at all that thoughts are bad. Um, I, I had a, a Tetley teabag once that said, it's okay to stop thinking, just remember to start again. <laughs> and sometimes we can get the idea in practice that you know, we should abandon all thinking. Um, thinking is important, but functional thinking, thinking that is useful, thinking that um, actually has a a purpose to it, 
is very, very different than the whole world, the whole tangle within of wants and not wants and um, fantasies and concepts and ideas, you know, that whole thicket within that we come in contact with uh, in practice. Some, some people never even know it's there. Now, it's good news to at least know it's there. Uh, but anyway, gently beginning to disentangle ourselves from having to think, from being compelled to think, from the oppression of thought, which is really different than being thoughtful. One of the images of a concentrated mind is that of a candle being in a place where there's no wind. You know, a lit candle, obviously, being in a place where there's no wind. And um, so no flickering. The, the, the flame of the candle staying quite steady, quite still. You know, utterly steady, utterly still. Or that of a still pool of water uh, where you can really see down into the depths of it. This is really what concentration allows for us. And then the last is wisdom, which is a seeing into our true nature. It's an intuitive, transformative understanding that comes about through seeing things as they are. This is the practice of Vipassana, and Vipassana means to see into things exactly as they are. The result of this seeing into is wisdom. Moving from a preoccupation with content to an awareness of process, gradually beginning to move away from an over-attentiveness, an over-absorption or preoccupation with the contents of consciousness into more interest and curiosity around how things are operating in more of a universal way, as well as a personal way. But bringing the universal element into it, how is my mind the same as yours, rather than how is my condition different than yours? Working with these kinds of questions. Seeing into the heart free from torment. Getting a glimpse of Buddha nature. Looking at this question, what brings suffering and what brings happiness? and looking as clearly and as deeply as we possibly can. Wisdom is not in any way an accumulation of knowledge. It's actually a radical cellular inner transformation. It's actually a cellular inner transformation, not just accumulating bits of information or knowledge. Seeing into impermanence and the implications of impermanence, that when we cling, there will be suffering, either a little bit or a lot. When we let go, there will be spaciousness. And we can have some trust and confidence in this. Looking into... um, how sometimes we take things so so personally. I had such a great example of this many years ago when I was um, practicing in Thailand the first time I was there. I was in this little hut way out by myself. And um, you know, no electricity, of course. It was a forest monastery. And so at 6 o'clock every night, it would just get totally, totally, completely no light anywhere. And I couldn't see any lights from where I was. And really, really, really dark. 
<laughs> I'm setting the stage. <laughs> and I had a walking path that was um, outside of my hut, but it was a little ways away. It wasn't like step outside and you're on your walking path. It was, you know, I had to like go a little ways to get to the walking path. And it was, it was in the daytime, it was great to have this little, little hut and this really wonderful little walking path right out in the, in the woods. It was a yogi's delight, you know? It was really wonderful. But when I was there, the first while that I was there, I would hear all these um, noises, you know, because it was the forest, and um, there are a lot of animals, and they get talked about a lot. Yeah? I mean, just two days before this realization happened, um, there had been a poisonous snake that was caught in the, in the forest, and all these stories about people recently having gotten stung by scorpions. So daytime, you know, I can handle it. Nighttime, um, out by myself, and um, you just, you know how the mind is just so funny. Um, I was, um, <laughs> we know, right. Um, I was in Thailand, so of course everyone spoke Thai and not English, and um, I was thinking if something happened, you know, I wouldn't be able to ask for help. I forgot that a scream is a universal language. <laughs> and it actually wouldn't be, have been a problem. But I would be doing my walking practice, and I would be thinking that they were coming after me, you know? That the, the animals were, knew I was out there, you know, were chatting with one another, I guess, and were, were coming after me. I felt very exposed and very much, you know, like I was very personal about it. And it took me a while to realize, you know, because there was a lot of fear there, it took me a while to realize that they were, these little animals, they were living their life, you know? I mean, they were eating, they were probably chatting, they were making little baby scorpions. You know, they weren't, they weren't interested in me. If I was walking and I stepped on one, absolutely, you know, to defend its territory or to, um, you know, to, to protect itself, certainly. But, you know, not deliberately coming onto my, my path <laughs> to attack me. <laughs> this is, uh, uh, you know, how wisdom begins to emerge is in these particular situations when you don't have any. To look at how these um, energies, these powers of mind balance themselves. One way that these energies need to balance is there needs to be a balance between faith and wisdom as well as between effort and concentration. We never need to worry about mindfulness because mindfulness is a balancer. It's, it's inherently balancing as a quality of mind. And it also, whatever we bring it to, it immediately balances and sets things right. So it's not to be concerned about. But when there is more faith than wisdom, which certainly can happen at times, there's a sense of being overly excited about things, you know, kind of when things become quite sentimental or dramatic or um, this kind of thing, like overly emotional. There can be a, a clinging to ideas and experiences as being more important than they are, you know, since no, any, all experiences come and go. When we attach to a certain experience and say, this is it, this is the one, uh, this is a, you know, wonderful, this is the best experience that has ever happened. And we have that kind of tone in our voice, you know, this is the best, the Dharma is great, you know, that kind of thing. A little evangelical. We, we, we want to look at whether there's a little bit more um, 
faith happening than, than wisdom. I kind of have a good, good story to illustrate this. God has many names, a guru told his disciple, and one of these is Rama. If you see God in everything, then you will be safe wherever you go. So the disciple traveled, and everywhere he went, he recited, Ram, Ram, to keep himself safe. One day he came to a village that was being terrorized by a mad elephant who rampaged through the the streets regularly. When the villagers warned the disciple that the elephant had been heard nearby, the disciple was not concerned. My guru told me only to recognize God in everything and I will be safe, he answered. But the villagers persisted, insisting that it was very dangerous to go out when the elephant was around. This elephant is God and I am God, so why should I be afraid, thought the disciple, and he went right out into the street. The elephant, seeing a man in the middle of the street, charged right at him. Watch out, the villagers cried. And even as the disciple thought, I am God and you are God, the mad elephant picked him up and dashed him to the side of the road, nearly killing him. After a long convalescence, the disciple returned to his guru to tell the story and to complain. (laughs) (laughs) You told me to see Rama in everything and I would be safe and now look at me. Oh, my son, replied the guru, you were right to see God in yourself and in the elephant. But why, he went on, did you fail to recognize God warning you in the voice of the villagers? Obviously, too much faith and not enough wisdom. More faith than wisdom is kind of like being in in an unhealthy relationship that you really know you should have no business being in, but you stay anyway, yeah? And that, that could apply to a person, but it can also apply to anything one is in relationship with. You know, staying in relationship with it because it's going to change. It has Buddha nature, too. You know, um, meanwhile, it's an unhealthy attachment. There's an unhealthy attachment occurring. When there is faith without enough energy, nothing happens. You know, in other words, faith without effort, nothing happens because we just have kind of a nice aspiration, or we have maybe a a sense inside that something is possible. But if there's no energy, we won't actually do the work that is necessary in order to realize our aspirations. When there is faith with energy, when there's plenty of energy but no wisdom, this is actually bad news, because... (laughs) You already can imagine, because this is where intolerance comes in, and you know it can even be really dangerous. It's sometimes when when there's kind of a a cult-like um, mind occurring, or even being in a cult. I'm always in the beginner groups at um, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center when people are very new, and you know it seems very weird. I'm always telling people it isn't a cult, and then of course they look around, they see people slow walking, and. <laughs> And of course, whenever you say it's not a cult, it's a bad sign. <laughs> it really means it is a cult. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but anyway, this is, this is when the mind can just get completely out of control. The energy is not a good thing. It's actually better to have faith with no energy than, than faith with energy, but there not being enough guidance or direction or wisdom occurring. When there is more wisdom than there is faith, there tends to be a gap between what we know and how we live. And this can be a very, very painful gap. Now, knowing something truly, 
you know, realizing that something is going to bring pain, that something really is going to bring uh, more difficulty and misery and, and um, unhappiness, and not being able to break the pattern. Yeah. Very, very painful. Sometimes it happens in practice as a phase. And you just have to be quite patient and put up with it and try not to hate yourself in the midst of it. Because it's on the way to something else. Now, it's not going to stay that way. But that gap, I think, one needs to relate to with quite a bit of kindness. Recognizing that one is doing one's best. And it just, at the moment, is still having dire consequences. When there is more wisdom than faith, the practice really is just in the mind. It's contained to the mind. It's not a full mind-body experience. And so it's quite shallow or superficial. Sometimes this comes about um, when, um, when one reads too much and hears about all these great experiences that can happen and um, kind of just it not happening for you. Yeah? And then getting very disappointed because of reading about things and, and thinking, oh, something is possible, but why isn't it happening to me? This is when you have to really put down the books and actually begin to practice because that gap will get wider and wider. You know, books should be nourishment. They should really actually help us. If, if we're reading as a way to get away from our life, then they're not going to help us at all. And our, our practice is going to stay... Um, quite superficial, and actually be very, very disappointing at some point. When there is more wisdom than faith, there is a tendency to not trust our actual experience, just just for there to be too much thinking and to stay on the level of thinking, trying to rely on figuring things out, on trying to figure out what the truth is and where it lies, instead of stopping and allowing for silence, allowing for stillness, allowing for the gradual emergence of Buddha nature within oneself. We miss it. We overshoot if we're too preoccupied with trying to figure this all out. It's also important to balance effort with samadhi. Effort offers us energy and clarity. Samadhi, or concentration, offers us calm and depth. That's the offer when we practice concentration. When there is more effort than there is concentration, there's a tendency to be quite restless and agitated, always waiting for something to happen, kind of being on the edge of one's cushion, waiting for something other than what is happening to happen. Wanting to attain the fruits of practice, you know, preoccupied with wanting to attain the fruits of practice. But meanwhile, just a whole lot of agitation going on. Obsessively thinking about the past and the future when there is more energy occurring than there is calm and depth. And so noticing this allows us to bring in a little bit more calm, allows us to focus more clearly on what is happening in the present moment. When there is more concentration than energy, more calm than effort, there can be a feeling of being quite drowsy and dazed and just kind of a little bit out of it, not quite here, not quite clear. A sense of inertia, 
what is called sinking mind can occur. Now, this is always a funny one because we always think, I never have enough concentration. How could there be more concentration than there is effort? Uh, but there can be. Um, you know, it can be like little bits of each that one is working with. But there's a lack of fluidity, a lack of buoyancy, kind of a, a sinking down, not a sinking into or settling back, but sinking like, like lead down when there is concentration without enough effort or energy occurring. To balance our faith with our wisdom, what is necessary is to try to live our understanding. Yeah? To commit ourselves to live whatever degree of the path we understand. If we think we only understand a little tiny part of it, to commit ourselves to actually live that little tiny part of it. If we think we understand a great deal more of it, to commit ourselves to actually live that great deal more. This is really what brings about a very beautiful balance, is to commit ourselves to live whatever degree we understand. And also as well to be around people that that inspire us, that help us, that that um, influence us in, in a wholesome way. To balance concentration with effort, more walking is called for, actually. Um, the walking practice is extraordinarily balancing when we're working with the balance between energy and effort and concentration and calm. Um, whatever pace, you know, people are different in this way. But the walking is wonderful because if there's too much agitation, the walking practice brings it down a notch. If there's too much dullness, the walking practice brings in a little bit of energy. It's really not a break between sittings. It's, it's, actually, it's actually a practice in and of itself. Hmm. Sometimes to, to walk very, very slowly is what is called for when one is particularly drowsy or dull. Kind of counterintuitive. You know, we think we should walk fast. But to actually walk very, very slowly, gradually the energy comes back. Gradually, sometimes, we come in contact with an unexpected source of energy you know, that we were kind of too closed off to experience. So just to uh, finish with how these all complete themselves and connect up with one another, because it's very, very interesting how it connects There must be confidence or faith in order for there to be effort. You know, no effort without some degree of confidence or faith. The effort required, of course, is the effort to be mindful, the effort to be present. What concentration is, is sustaining the mindfulness. Now, mindfulness is noticing what's happening, noticing the nuances, observing without judgment. Concentration is sustaining mindfulness. It's moment after moment after moment, a continuity of mindfulness, keeping the attention focused and clear and sustained. And the good news is that wisdom is the result of this. Wisdom is the result of concentration and mindfulness coming together. Because out of concentration and mindfulness coming together, you know, noticing more and more what's happening, and then sustaining our attention long enough to see deeply into our experiences. 
you know, as an example, we don't know that something is impermanent unless we hang around long enough to notice it go. Otherwise, it's just an idea. But if we can sustain the attention and then also notice that it's impermanent, then we will see everything coming and everything going. And it requires some degree of confidence and faith to stay around long enough to notice it coming as well as going, not just coming, but going as well. With faith comes the willingness to turn towards the present moment instead of following instinct. This turning towards is what is known as effort. With effort, the attention is sustained, which is called concentration. I'm just talking about it a little bit differently, but the same thing. With effort and concentration, there is mindfulness, which is noticing subtle aspects of our experience. Mindfulness and concentration is a sustained noticing, and the result is seeing things as they are. The result, in other words, is wisdom, and the fruit of wisdom really is liberation. So, um, let me just illustrate this with the sound of the bell. Now, when I ring the ring, make a sound, um, uh, there has to be the confidence to turn away from whatever it is you're thinking about right now that might be a whole lot more interesting than the sound. So confidence to turn towards the present moment and be with the sound, right? Um, that's, that's the confidence. Turning towards is turning away from and turning towards the sound, turning away from instinct, turning towards the present moment. The mindfulness is noticing all the subtle nuances of the um, sound of the bell, the highlights, the lowlights, the, you know, kind of really engaging with the sound. And the concentration is sustaining our attention. So mind moves away, bringing it back. Mind moves away, bringing it back. And then out of this, the result is wisdom, because at some point you will notice that the sound is not happening any longer. Okay, so just practicing. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.